Over the last five or six years, China's made $500 billion. $500 billion. Ripped it out of the United States. And not only that, if you take a look, intellectual property theft. Add that to it. And add a lot of other things to it. So somebody, excuse me, somebody had to do it. I am the chosen one. Trump had just canceled a trip to Denmark, a key NATO ally, because the Danish prime minister would not sell him Greenland, calling the idea absurd, which made our very stable genius call her nasty and then cancel the official trip. So don't worry, America, alienating allies, it's, it's all part of the plan. Well, you know, we've been talking about indexing for a long time, and many people like indexing, and it can be done very simply. It can be done directly by me. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. We haven't talked about policy in way too long, and there's a lot going on that's not just the steady punches to the solar plexus that keep us hyperventilating on most days. So my guest today is going to suggest some other things that we should hyperventilate about. Oh, no, not really. Paul Waldman is a liberal, progressive American op-ed columnist and senior writer at The American Prospect, as well as a contributor to The Week and a blogger for The Washington Post's Plumline blog. He's also, for my money, one of the sanest journalists writing today, and he's going to discuss policy with me. Welcome to Trumpcast, Paul. Thank you. So we rarely do this on this show, and I really want to do it now, which is take our eye off the dominant spectacle and talk more about what's happening while we're not looking in terms of policy in the time of this president. Is there anything you have specifically in mind that we we haven't attended closely enough to? Well, there are all kinds of things going on, even if there isn't much legislation happening. And I think that's sort of a bias that we have because it's easy to see when there are things happening in Congress. You know, people get up and they give speeches about them. Uh, but when there's things happening in the agencies or, you know, the administration is planning something that will that it may unveil a while from now, mm-hmm. there's no event you can stick a camera in front of. For instance, one thing that I wrote about recently was uh, the administration is contemplating a push to uh, index the capital gains tax to inflation, which has been something that conservatives have wanted for a while, and that Ted Cruz and a bunch of other senators recently urged them to do, which doesn't sound like it would be um, all that consequential, except that there's one analysis that says it would cost the Treasury $100 billion over the next 10 years, and 63% of the benefits would go to the wealthiest one-tenth of 1% of Americans. So basically what it would mean— Tell me how that that works. So uh, people might know the capital gains tax is something you pay when, for instance, you sell a stock. Um, It's something that is mostly paid by wealthy people because they have the capital gains. They have the capital to gain from. Um, So, for instance, if you buy a stock—if you bought a stock, you know, 10, 20 years ago for $50 and— then you sell it for, let's say, $150, you pay taxes on that $100 that you made. Now, the tax is actually lower than the than you pay for income taxes, which is something that I think a lot of people would find unjust, that you know the money you pay when you work, the money you make when you work, gets, paid, gets taxed at a higher rate than when your money is just making you more money. But anyway, so, so that's what, how, how the capital gains tax works. 
but it's not indexed to inflation. Now, what conservatives want to do is to say that, okay, you bought that stock for $50 20 years ago, but now that $50 would be worth $75. So you should only have to pay taxes on the difference between the $75 and the $150 that you, uh, that you sold the stock for. So it would basically just be a way of for people who do things like sell stocks, for them to pay less taxes on it. So it's it's basically another tax cut for the wealthy. And, you know, this is something that I think is evidence of a kind of uh, a really, if you get down to it, a sort of integrity on the part of the Republican Party. And here's what I mean. Cutting taxes for the wealthy is not popular. You know, every poll that gets taken says that overwhelmingly, the majority of the public thinks that we should raise taxes on the wealthy. But Every single time that Republicans take power, that is the first item on the agenda. They, whatever else they're going to do, they might start a war, they might not start a war, they might really restrict abortion rights, they might not, but they are always going to have a, a tax cut that will benefit the wealthy and or corporations, even though it's not popular because they think it's the right thing to do. So they're willing to take that political risk knowing that it really doesn't have any benefit. And, you know, they may offer arguments about how it's all going to trickle down and it'll stimulate the economy and it won't cost anything because it'll pay for itself. They'll make those claims. But at heart, they know that it's not really going to win them any votes, but it's so important to them that they're going to do it no matter what. It's and it's so that's since Reagan. I mean, since the doing good by doing well neurons started to wire together, that seemed like the last time that there was real cogency, Reaganomics, even if lots of sophistry, in a White House thinking about the economy? Or were Republicans invested in tax breaks for the wealthy before Reagan? They always had sort of a, a business class within the party. But I mean, if you look back at what the tax rates were into the 1960s, they were up over 70 percent. Um, yeah. You know, when Eisenhower was president, I think they were over 90 percent. Yes. Reagan was the first one who said that we are going to radically cut that top rate and did it all the way down to 28 percent. And so I think, you know, he's really the the most important demarcation line from when it went from something that maybe Republicans would have liked to do, but thought, you know, wasn't worth investing in to something that they they held as kind of a central priority of what it meant to be a Republican, that we are going to do this no matter what. And it's interesting that rank-and-file Republicans don't rally around that, even as it's a central tenet of the party in power. Do you think that they end up tricking their constituencies? I mean, you don't hear the phrase capital gains at Trump rallies, for example. I think they do two things. There's always a marketing campaign that accompanies it. And the real, the, the genius one was from George W. Bush. I don't know if you remember this. So what they did was, first of all, they designed the tax cuts so that even if most of the benefits, um, I'm talking about the first one he did in 2001, so that most of the benefits went to the wealthy, but everybody got something. And for most families, it was, I think, $300 that they would get. And then what they did was they had the Treasury Department send a letter to every single household in America that said, guess what? We're going to be sending you a check for $300. It didn't just come out of your taxes at the end of the year. They actually sent everyone a check. I it was, remember. It was genius marketing. <laughs> but then there's something else. I think that Republicans understand that that is not always going to be enough. Mm -hmm. So they have pushed other issues, often social issues, especially right around election time, that they can use to convince their voters that even if this is a party that is, in economic terms, mostly advocating for the interests of the wealthy, and even if you can't, you obviously can't 
assemble an electoral majority just on the basis of what's good for the 1% or even the 10% or the, the 20%. So they, they have to give voters something else that they can sort of turn their attention away from the economics if the economics isn't working out the way they want it to. And so they can say, well, here's what, what really matters. And, and so you, what you would often find is that the Democrat would come out and say, you know, here's my 10-point plan, and I hope you will find it more amenable than my opponent's plans. And the Republican would come out and point to the Democrat and say, that guy hates you and everything you stand for. And so, you know, for instance, a great example is in 2004, when same-sex marriage sort of suddenly burst onto the national scene as an issue, they seized on that and they said, basically, this is going to be a great issue for us. And all across the country, you got ballot initiatives on the ballot in, I don't know how many states, but it was many states, maybe most of the states, banning same-sex marriage, with at the, which at the time was a popular position, and it motivated their voters to get out to vote. Mm-hmm. And so I think that you can't uncouple the social issues from the economic issues because so often Republicans use those socialist issues to kind of distract from the economics. And now you can say that Donald Trump is perhaps planning the same thing. I mean, obviously, he says that this is the greatest economy in history. But the truth is that he's not getting as much credit as uh, some presidents have gotten on the economy, probably because people dislike him for other reasons. Democrats are talking about sort of more fundamental things beyond just the unemployment rate that are they think are wrong about slowly rising wages and you know people's lack of power in the workplace and things like that. And so Trump believes that the way to win re-election is to focus on immigration and race and that those things are going to, just like same-sex marriage did years ago, uh, those right. things are going to get his base out to the polls to be motivated um, and energized and that's going to win him re-election. That's his theory. I'm not sure, though, it's one thing is a cover for the other. You know, if the build a wall also can go with some kind of libertarianism, it seems like this complete incoherence that he's foisted in a cult of personality way on people who who had just lost track of what their interests were at all. Yeah, well, the Republican Party contains multitudes. Yes, it does. I think that there are uh, that for Trump himself, everything is improvisational and he's often just doing what what seems to be working at a particular moment, even the whole build the wall thing. Yeah. Apparently, he, you know, started saying it at one or two rallies and saw the response he got and people were cheering and then decided that this was fantastic and he was going to make it the centerpiece of his campaign. Yeah. So, you know, I think that there that there are Republicans like, you know, the sort of more establishment types for whom some of the social issue things are, just aren't that important. You know, they are interested in a capital gains tax cut and they are interested in reducing regulation. And, you know, they they never cared about banning same sex marriage. I don't think they all that much care about abortion, but they know that those issues are very important to kind of holding the whole coalition together. Mm-hmm. And then there may be others who really do thrill to to the things that Trump says and for whom all of his, you know, everything that most people find vulgar and crass about him, that that's what they think is terrific. Um, I think there there are, are some of those people, too. And in the end, Trump got about 90 percent of the votes of Republicans, which is pretty much the same as Mitt Romney got in 2012 mm-hmm. and the mm-hmm. same as John McCain got in 2008. So there were cer- a certain number of of people maybe like the Paul Ryan types who, you know, didn't really like the things that he says and who he is, but in the end could not 
bring themselves to vote for Hillary Clinton and thought that we are going to get the economic policies that we want. We're going to get the uh, the judges that we want. And all of that stuff is so important that we will tolerate this person who is you know personally repugnant to us. And, you know, that's not a crazy thing to think. It's not irrational for them to say that they're getting 95% of their policy priorities and they're getting all these judges who are going to be on the bench for, for decades. And that's the right choice for them, even if they have to compromise their integrity. And the truth is also that I don't think there's going to be any kind of reckoning. I might believe that in a, in a fairer world, anyone who allied themselves with Trump or worked for Trump should be cast out of polite society and never be able to get a job again and have their neighbors sneer at them when they take out the garbage. But that's not going to happen. They're going to be fine. There are too many people who are on that train. You know, there's there's an entire world of Republican politics in which they'll all be perfectly fine. We'll keep getting jobs. We'll keep being celebrated. I firmly believe that there there will be no comeuppance for all the people who are complicit. I mean, it may be. More people than I thought have the kind of sang-froid that nobody has it like Trump, where he, you know, he's unmolested by the rumblings of a soul, as Mark Sanger put it. I mean, there's no sign that he, you know, ever has a conscience. But yeah, I mean, I think if people are able to cycle back, they will have been able to really rinse out this administration from their from their resumes. And Nikki Haley may be able to do that because she was around for such a, sh- a short, relatively short time. But I continue to think it'll be like the architects of the the Iraq war that, you know, we sort of keep them at arm's length. Yeah, some of them, but some of them are, you know, uh, I think the, the, the Republicans also have a, have a remarkable ability to, to forgive people. Yeah. You know, yes. I mean, Elliot Abrams they're, they're is coordinating our, our policy toward Venezuela, a guy who was one of the architects of the Iran-Contra yes, scandal that's and was right. convicted of a crime. Yes, yep. <laughs> so. All right, that's true. Well, we'll see on that one. I, I do think that, like, you know, just just as the Mueller report was sustaining many of us, we've moved in a desperate way to thinking, well, there'll be some kind of restorative justice. And then if that doesn't happen, maybe this will all be sorted out in the afterlife. I can't stand the idea that some of these people won't have to face what they've done. So anyway, how did you respond to the Mueller report? You know, I I was uh, one of those people who was really uncertain that it would be the kind of blockbuster people were hoping for. And I guess I felt like there was so much evidence already of malfeasance that didn't bring about the kind of universal consensus that, yes, this was awful and he deserves to be impeached among other things, that I had no confidence that whatever more evidence would be in there was going to change very many people's minds either. And that's kind of what happened. I mean, it you know, like if you actually read it, it's an extraordinary indictment, uh, using that word in a non-legal sense, of Trump and the other people around him. But it's hard even to imagine that there would be almost anything that he could have said that would convince any significant number of Republicans beyond one or two to say that this is beyond the pale. The truest thing Trump ever said was when he said he could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue and he wouldn't lose any supporters. It remains true today. 
Well, it, it could be that he described something that was already true, or it could be that he brought that into existence, because that was very Goebbels-like of him. And Putin does that, too. The people will never leave me. Their adherence to me is absolute. And, it, you know, it is till it isn't. I guess we'll see if the Democrats in Congress don't impeach or don't conduct these hearings in a way that changes minds and don't have their own minds changed that he ought to be impeached then maybe it's true. I guess this is why the election will speak up. But I, I hold out hope that some Trumpites will come around. Do you see any evidence of that in your reporting? I think that, that you can see, you can look at something like the 2018 election and say that Democrats were energized and Trump seems to be losing support in a lot of suburban places where you'd think there are more moderate Republicans. So it's true of the official Republican Party, because, you know, if you're a, a Republican member of Congress, even if you don't like him, you know that you're the most of your constituents do. And most members of Congress and most Republican senators come from either states or districts where they don't have to worry about being beaten by a Democrat. The only thing they have to fear is a challenge from the right in a primary. And so even if there are some of their constituents who may be dissatisfied, the, mo the bulk of them are still supporting the president. And so what's in it for you if you're a Republican congressman to come out and condemn the president? It, you know, All you're doing is risking your career. And the one thing that motivates members of Congress more than anything else is survival. So that's a sort of a self-perpetuating system that he doesn't have to threaten them. Uh, they, you know, they know which, which side their bread is buttered on. That goes back to this idea of indexing capital gains taxes to inflation, because if you're just trying to stay in power, pleasing your supporters or even winning new votes is is only part of the battle. The other one is pleasing your donors. <laughs> um, and people's need to hold on to power is something I feel like I always underestimate. I was bewildered why even Pence joined up with Trump. You know, I thought that he, he'll never be able to sleep at night. My mother said, you don't understand greed and power as motivators. <laughs> and I guess I don't. I feel like I have to go back and maybe read some elementary history to remind myself that people really like being in power, I guess. Yeah. And both things can be true. You know, they they want to maintain their position and they have things that they believe and they manage to reconcile them and think that they're serving both ends at the same time. That the things that they do, the things that will get them power and maintain that power are, are the right thing to do. Um, yeah. And people have an infinite capacity to convince themselves of that. So um, speaking of Pence, you've also written that America as a country sort of riddled with religiosity or defined in some ways by religiosity, not just religion, but kind of florid expressions of religious belief and superstition. How do you think that has played into a president who, to the naked eye, looks quite irreligious, and yet he seems to appeal to the same minds that like yeah. that kind of language? Well, that was a, one of the most fascinating things about 2016 is how completely he won over evangelicals. And it was partly purely a transactional thing. People remember that that sort of embarrassing moment when he was speaking at Liberty University and he said something about uh, two Corinthians instead of second Corinthians. But what people missed was what he said right afterward. After he quoted the passage, he said, is that the one you like? I think that's the one you like. And it was sort of like just taking the veil off, just saying like, I'm pandering to you. Yeah. And is this, is this pandering appropriate? And, <laughs> and the answer was yes. They were completely happy. But I think I think partly it was that sort of transaction that they would give him their support and he would be there for them. And I think they understood that he has he doesn't care about any of the stuff that they care about. And so he's happy to give them what they want because it doesn't come into conflict with anything else that he wants. And it's also I think that within 
a lot of evangelical circles, he represents a sort of a patriarchal worldview that they find very attractive. Even if it's given vulgar expression, they want the, the clock to be turned back to the 1950s. And that's the thing that, that Trump was offering, again, much more explicitly than anybody else. He would say, you're going to be able to say Merry Christmas again. Not that anybody ever stopped saying Merry Christmas, but it was this idea that he validated this sense of victimhood that a lot of uh, Christians have now. And we should say, you know, they have genuinely lost something which is they they lost a kind of cultural hegemony that they had forever. And when now all of a sudden society looks more inclusive and department stores put up signs that say happy holidays because not everyone is a Christian. If your culture was the culture, then that feels like you've lost something because you have. You've lost that dominance. And so he came along and told them that they were right to feel that way and he would bring it all back. Now, just like he was never going to build a wall and have Mexico pay for it, he's not going to turn back the clock to the 1950s and put women back in their place and the, all, all everything that goes along with that. It's it's never going to happen. But I think there a lot of people were very attracted to somebody who would say that that was desire was proper and right and that he would do it for them. One of my concerns is that he offered people this kind of racial cleansing of the country that would turn back the clock and he would get rid of all the immigrants. And the worry that I raised was what if the people who really like to hear that when they realize, as apparently, according to the manifesto that is allegedly came from this shooter in El Paso, that Trump was not going to be enough. Like he was mm. not going to do it. Mm -hmm. And immigrants continue to come. There are no fewer immigrants now in the United States than there were three years ago. Yeah. So when those people, when that, that sort of extremist slice of, of the people who were attracted to that, when they look around and say, no, it didn't work. We elected Trump and there are still immigrants running around. Are they going to – are some of them going to become more violent? And what if Trump loses? Are they going to say, you know, p politics is not going to solve this problem and I need to take matters into my own hands and start killing people? I wonder if if there's kind of an analogy, not with the violence, but just with the dissatisfaction, if there are going to be highly religious conservative people who say that Trump promised to turn back the clock and the clock mm. really isn't turning back. You know, modernity continues its march. Yeah, yeah. It is interesting, though, how – what an imagined past this is, which is why I think some of the sh the white supremacist terrorists are on a, a kind of a suicide mission. I mean, they're working they, uh, literally a suicide mission in some cases, but they're they all work so hard against their interests. It's not clear what their positive vision is, where with Reaganites, you could imagine what it looked like a little bit aspirational, rich, making jobs for the less fortunate, lots of entrepreneurs. American military might project it all around the world. I don't even know what that looks like for the most clear-headed Trumpite. Yeah, it's it, it can be hard to tell. And I think that um, it was vague enough that you could project onto it whatever whatever you wanted. Or even even just the expression of grievance, I think, for some people was enough. All the stuff about political correctness, you know, what he basically told them was like, you don't have to be nice to people you don't like. And that's what a lot of political correctness is. It's just telling people like to, to, to treat people uh, with respect, even if you don't like them. And Trump said, no, you don't have to do that. You can tell them what you think. And a lot of people found that really liberating. And it didn't even matter if it got translated into some kind of policy, like just the the election and that kind of expression that's sort of giving the middle finger to to everybody that they disliked, that was its own reward. Trump getting elected was was its own reward. Then what do, you, what do you do afterward? Well, I would assume you start to wonder a couple of years later, well, you know, what am I getting out of this? 
But there's another side to that, too, which is that we live in an age of negative partisanship where people are much more highly motivated by their dislike of the other party than they are by their affection for their own party. And if you are one of the Republican base, you're a consumer of conservative media, which is mostly about how terrible Democrats are. And so you don't even need a vision of the future if the only thing that matters is that you keep those bastards out of power. Um, because you're being fed this kind of dystopian vision of the future that if Democrats are elected, they're going to open up the borders and we're going to be flooded with immigrants and they're going to take away all your freedoms and force you to gay marry an abortionist and all of these things. And even if the present is dissatisfying in some ways, if you're sufficiently convinced that the future, uh, if the other party wins, is going to be such a, a horror – yeah. then that's enough to get you to the polls. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, you know, I really, I think you and I may be almost alone coming away from the Democratic debates thinking that things are going great. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, I was so happy to hear cogent debates about what to do about the uh, INA, how to reform it, you know, debates between Castro and O'Rourke. And it seemed like signs of life to me. It seems like you ha you share something of that view. Yeah, you know, hand-wringing is kind of a Democratic specialty, um, but I, I don't have a problem with them arguing each, with each other vigorously. There's this kind of feeling like, no, no, the Republicans are watching. They'll see us fighting. But as you say, that, that's what the process is supposed to be about. They're, they're supposed to beat the hell out of each other to a certain degree and have a vigorous debate about these issues so that the party can decide collectively what it stands for. And if it works then the person who is the most capable of winning the general election will be the one who wins the the nomination. Like, you know, it's, it's supposed to be a trial. It's supposed to be hard. And it, it's, it's incredibly hard. I think it's underappreciated just how difficult it is to run for president. And if you can make it through that that trial, then you will be the one who is who is the most capable, hopefully. Um, and I don't even have a problem with them criticizing some, some things that Barack Obama did. And that that caused a, a whole lot of people saying, no, no, we can't criticize Obama. Why aren't you criticizing Trump instead? It's not that there's any, any shortage of criticisms of Donald Trump around. And nobody, you know, was personally attacking Obama. They took issue with some of his policy shortcomings. And he had some policy shortcomings, even if you think he was a great president. And one of the things that that I think the Democrats should want to hear from their candidates is not just can they beat the president, but do they have a, a real understanding of governing? And one of the ways you, you, figure, you figure that out is you say, here's something that Obama did with perhaps the best intentions that didn't work. Why didn't it work? What were, what were the challenges that he faced? What were the mistakes that he made? And if you are really thoughtful about that, then that shows that you've done some thinking about what it takes not just to be a president or to have the right issue positions, but to actually accomplish things. Because governing is extremely complicated. And there's never been a perfect president who didn't have some failures. And so I would think the Democrats would want to know someone who's in line with their values and they want to know who is going to uh, be able to run a good campaign. But they they should want to know who can actually be good at governing, because in the end, after four years or eight years, that's going to be what really matters. Not just did they sit in the chair, but did they actually get the things done that Democrats care about?
Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, the two parties used to be divided, at least when I was a kid. One was the party of the head, the ideas. That was like the Buckley types were always telling you sort of what idiot basket weavers liberals were by contrast with those who had his classical education. And they had all kinds of ideas um, and were smart and thought with their heads rationally about things. And the Democrats were so-called bleeding hearts. Well, I think Trump has introduced a third part of the body into it, which is like the disgust system or the sensory system, physical system. So I'm hoping the Democrats give up on trying to punch everyone in the face with slogans, but don't give up on the emotional and intellectual appeal of what I think are good campaigns. Yeah, well, and and if you have a, a really fantastic, talented politician, they can do all those things. And I think that was true of Obama. You know, he was a serious person who thought about policy and understood how things worked. And he also could stir people and give a speech that would make them weep. So those kind of talents don't come along all that often. But that's what we would hope for in the best of circumstances. So obviously, I I think that we can take that too far uh, in there's always this sort of search for authenticity, which is, I think, the most overused term in campaign coverage and we sort of deny that the whole thing is is a show even the what we're what you know what we're after is not really authenticity but a convincing portrayal of the authentic and it's also true that even a president who is indifferent to the details will have some people around him or her who will who will fill all that in but the individual makes a big difference and i think that's what one of the things that trump has made so clear is that you don't just get a program that you can look up on the party platform. Who that individual is who's sitting in the Oval Office makes a huge difference in terms of what they prioritize, what they care about, what kinds of decisions they make. It can be very, very difficult to predict when you watch them on the campaign trail because, you know, after all, campaigning and governing are two very different things. But the, you know, the individual really does does make a big difference, even if even if it's the same 3000 people who get hired to fill out the the rest of the administration. I mean, that's that is the case now. If Elizabeth Warren is the president or Kamala Harris is the president or even Bernie Sanders is the president, Mm -hmm. um, the person who's the deputy undersecretary of agriculture is going to be the same guy. Yes. Yeah. Only Trump just doesn't fill the positions and fills them all himself or whatever he's doing. I hate that we have to wrap this, but I, before we go, I want to ask you one question. Tell me two candidates for the Democratic nomination who interest you. Well, I guess the first one I would say is Warren, because there was a period where after that whole idiotic thing with the her, her DNA test and everything where she was being written off. But she took some chances not doing fundraisers and I think has really been building support slowly but surely on the ground. And one of the things, the interesting things that um, Dave Weigel, who is used to be at Slate and is now at the Washington Post, who I think is the best political reporter in America, he says that there are only two candidates who when people go into a room with them at, a, at you know, a rally, a town hall, whatever it is, that they they weren't sure when they walked in, but when they walk out, they're excited about voting for that person. Mm-hmm. And one of them is Warren more than anybody else. But also, he says, Booker, Cory Booker has that. Effect ah, yeah. Um, and is is that the other one who interests you? Well, I, w- I would certainly cite him. He would be one of them. I, you know, Michelle Goldberg in the New York Times wrote a column, also an ex-slate person, um, mm-hmm. uh, that, that I really agree with, just sort of wondering why he hasn't gotten more support 
because he's he's a very appealing guy in a lot of ways. And there are some people who think that he's a little too enthusiastic and don't believe that he's authentic. But I think that he'd make an excellent vice presidential candidate for somebody. I think that if there was another person I would uh, who I find interesting is Julian Castro. Oh, I don't. God, me I, too. I, I, I doubt that he's going to be able to catch fire, but he is a I think a sincere and serious guy who in in a different world might have a more obvious case to make than people are granting him credit for. I mean, he was a mayor, he was a cabinet secretary, and uh, he think he's very smart and, and his heart seems to be in the right place about everything. And it's I think it's always interesting to watch someone like that who you'd think would be doing better, but but is just having trouble breaking through with you when you still have 25 candidates. And mm-hmm. it's so it's so difficult if you're not one of those people who whom the media decides right away, like these are the five we're going to spend our time talking about. If suddenly people wrote 100 articles about Julian Castro, he'd be much higher in the polls. But it's this kind of vicious cycle that you can't break out of. If you can't get attention, you won't get any attention. Well, maybe um, we maybe we have to do it ourselves. I, t- I totally agree with you on him. He's the, he's the only person, and this is a big deal, who gives me hope that the immigration debate is not just sentimental conversation on the left and racist conversation on the right. And just to change the terms of the debate, it gave me hope that our our brains will rally. And as you say, I don't know if he how far he'll get, but those little signs of hope are what are what are sustaining me. Yeah, every once in a while, you know, the campaign can actually produce something useful. Yes, that's right. Exactly. Something good, yes, might come of it. And he's clearly made a study of it. Um, thank you so much for being here, Paul. Um, I really am like, so glad to get to finally talk to you. I'm, I'm such an admirer. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. My guest has been the great Paul Waldman. He's a liberal, progressive American op-ed columnist and a senior writer for The American Prospect. He also contributes to The Washington Post's Plumline blog. That's it for today's show. What did you think? Open up in the confessional of Twitter, where all open secrets belong. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And then head on over to Slate Plus and become a member. Today is your day. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're missing out on all sorts of perks, including ad-free and bonus episodes, discounts to our live show, and bragging rights to your podcast-loving friends to let them know you're supporting our work. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.